first thing we wanted to discuss here today was I recently went to go see uh, Tenet. You know, I talked about that on open mic. I, I put up my little Tenet straight out of the theater, first reaction to Tenet and all that kind of stuff. One of the interesting things, though, was which trailers they played. Now, I went to go see uh, New Mutants. I went to go see New Mutants uh, in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago, and they only played one trailer. And it was for some horror movie I really wasn't familiar with called Come Play, and the trailer actually looked pretty fun. I'm looking forward to that. So I didn't know how many trailers they would play in front of Tenet. Turns out they played like eight trailers. One of them was for Black Widow. And it was interesting that as it got to the end of the trailer, it still put up the date opening in theaters November 6th. Now, of course, Black Widow is Wonder Woman has just moved and things like that. Whether or not Black Widow would actually keep its release date has been a question in mind. Well, I just thought it was interesting that they're playing trailers still advertising November 6th. Well, today, Marvel Studios' Twitter page put out a post, uh, put out a tweet, basically promoting the new cover of Total Film Magazine promoting Black Widow. And this was Marvel's own Twitter like, was promoting this. Black Widow, which still in its pages, promoted as opening on <coughs> November 6th. Now, this in and of itself certainly does not guarantee that Black Widow is indeed going to open on November 6th. But I did find it interesting, Rob, that we had, number one, I was in the theaters, still promoting November 6th on its trailer. And then we see that Marvel is tweeting out a promotion of this film magazine cover that in the pages are still promoting Black Widow's opening is November 6th. I I cannot help but suspect this gives a little bit more weight to the argument or at least the belief that Marvel and Disney fully intend to release this thing on November 6th. I don't know that they are looking to push it any further. And the fact that they seem to be doubling down on it right now certainly doesn't guarantee it, but I think might suggest that they're still looking at November 6th. Rob, when we see trailers dropping still with that date and a new magazine dropping that Marvel itself is promoting, do you think this sways does, or does it for you sway your belief at all one way or the other about the likelihood of Black Widow maintaining that November 6th release date? No, I obviously magazines have long lead times, so they have to go to press and they have to prep their magazines <clears throat> in advance. I think both the releases of Tenet and Mulan have been less than each studio hoped they would be. And I think it was very telling that Warner Brothers moved Wonder Woman into December. I wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me at all if Black Widow is pushed further, maybe even into 2021 because the the uh, the pay-per-view numbers on Mulan are not what they wanted them to be. Certainly the Chinese numbers on Mulan aren't what they wanted them to be. The domestic release of Tenants certainly hasn't lit the box office charts afire, even though, what, it's crossed $200 million worldwide total. But on a movie that costs $200 million, um, <laughs> breaking even on its production costs, you don't even really do that. That's a gross – that's a gross – 200, 200 million right, is the we'll, gross. We'll talk Tenet later, though. We're, we'll yeah, talk Tenet a little bit later. I, I just think, I don't think so. I think Black Widow's going to get moved. I think it's probably going to get moved into 2021. I think this is an example of, like, the GQ article for No Time to Die. They had to run it. 
you know, they had to run that big that article because um, it, it, it the, the magazine, it, they, they have months in advance. They have to prep these magazines. So I don't think this is an indicator. I think it's going to move. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I do think it's an indicator. I do not. But but let me let me stress this. I think it's slightly an indicator. I, I like in the in the question of does this sway my opinion as to whether or not it will open up on November 6th and whether or not Disney seems to be. And remember, this whole situation is changing. The context is changing day by day. So yeah. what Disney is planning today may be different from what they're planning tomorrow. But when I see them still running the trailers, promoting that release date, when I see them promoting the new magazine coming out that still advertises the November 6th release date, that sways me a little bit. That sways me a little bit. Again, not into thinking that, oh, I'd bet a thousand dollars that this thing's opening on November 6th. No, no. But but I do think it makes it slightly more likely because I think if Disney was seriously considering moving that date, at minimum, because it's all done digitally now, I would think at minimum they would release, they would remove the release date from the trailers that are playing in cinemas right now. I would think at minimum they would caveat something about the release date. And if they're still leaving it on there, there at least still has to be serious consideration, I would think, that they're going to try to target that November release date. And, you know, like you mentioned, Tenet, which we will talk about a little bit further in the show, it's like, I think a lot of studios are just letting Tenet be that first penguin in the water because you and I have discussed it. A lot of, a lot of the general public, a lot of the general public still don't even realize theaters are open. And they're hoping that movies like Tenant and whatever are going to get the wheels going again, whether or not that's true. But listen, I decided to make that the topic of today's question of the day right off the top. Right off the top, I made that this the question of the day because I wanted to ask you guys whether or not you thought this was any indication. Now, I just put this up like, gosh, not even an hour ago. I put this poll up. So right now I ask, question of the day, with trailers and theaters still saying November 6th and a new Total Film magazine cover, what do you think the chances are that Black Widow is keeping its November 6th release date? Uh, we talked this more on today's show. 14% of you are saying over 75% that it keeps that November release date. 27% of you are saying what I'm where I'm kind of falling into, which is the 51% to 74% of us believe. I think there's a 51 to 74% chance that this does keep its November release date. And that's 27%. 32% of you only think it has a 26 to 50% chance of opening up on that November 6th release date. And 27% of you believe very unlikely, uh, 0 to 25%. Uh, are saying it's a zero to 25% chance that this thing actually opens November 6th. I'm in that 51 to 74 range, certainly not over 75, but I put myself in that 51 to 74 range. Rob, it sounds like you're taking that 26 to 50% range yeah. in there. Is that, yeah, in there too. So, <clears throat> I mean, we will have to wait and see. It is interesting. Again, it's a situation that changes day by day. What do you think is going to happen here with Black Widow, guys? Jump down into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys, with that down, let's go on to another off the top. And that is this, you know, we, Rob, you and I have both said that our number one most anticipated film of the year at this point is the new Denis Villeneuve film, Dune. And of course, they just dropped the trailer for Dune and uh, it looked pretty good to some of us, but I don't know if it appealed a lot to people who weren't looking forward to Dune already, but it is what is still my most anticipated film of the year. One of the people who appeared 
in the trailer was, of course, one of the stars Zendaya. By the way, I still don't know whether it's I hear I hear people say say Zendaya and I hear people say Zendaya. I I've think it's been, Zendaya. Is it Zendaya? Yeah. I've kind of been going with Zendaya. Whatever. Um, she's very talented at any rate. She, of course, is appears in the trailer, but there's a new story that came out that are catching some people by surprise, but it really shouldn't all that much. Basically, it's being said, she just did an interview where she basically reveals that her role in this movie is very, very small because she only shot a couple of days. Here's what she said in her interview with Empire. That's why I'm so excited to see it, to see what everyone's been up to. Director Denis Villeneuve and I had a little discussion about who Chani is and the strength she possesses. She's a fighter. That's what her people are. I only really had a few days with her, so I kind of scratched the surface. But I was, uh, but it was so much fun figuring her out. What does she walk like? What does she talk like? This is her planet. So how does she navigate this world? It was so fun. Denis is so kind of uh, is so kind and attentive to all of his actors. I was only there four days, and I did not want to leave. Denis understands what he wants from us, but he's also very collaborative, allowing me to have my take on the character as well. I don't. Don't want to jinx anything but i can't wait to explore her more so rob they basically came out and said yeah she's she's very don't expect to see a lot of zendaya in in this movie whatsoever she's only on set for a few days but you and i were talking before the show started that really shouldn't con confuse people much or concern people much when you know that the Dune story is being broken into two separate movies. If the first one does well enough to justify a second, it's being split into two. And we know that this character actually has the lion's share of their influence in the story in the second half of the story, uh, really more. So I would actually have been more surprised to hear that she actually had a big, massive part in this first movie when really it should be pushed off the second. Rob, how do you see this whole thing? Well, uh, you know, I read the script. And I just to answer this question, I pulled up the script and I'm looking at it right now. Chani appears first uh, as herself, where she speaks on page 116 of the script. Wow. Now, yeah, 116 uh, pay, page 116 of the script. And uh, let me come to the end. This script is the version I have is 130 pages. So she appears 14 pages before the end of the end of the movie which makes sense <laughs> because they they um you know this this is only the first half of dune so obviously paul dreams of her but you don't know who it is but it's not until page 116 and this is the john spates eric roth Denis Villeneuve draft i you know i can't um I, I you know again i don't know how they've edited the film together but at least on this on the page it's 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 14 pages before the end of the movie. So take that as you will. I can, I can also say that this is a fantastic script, and it's by far the best adaptation of the book that we've seen, and I cannot wait for this movie. Yeah, this is something we've both been looking for. Now, <clears throat> unfortunately, you and I have both seen movies that did not turn out to be very good when they had scripts that we actually enjoyed very much. So sometimes right. it gets lost in the execution, but this is a director. I just don't see any reason not to have all the faith in the world. in. he's going to make something great out of this. It's yeah. just a matter of whether people are going to rush out to see it. I mean, that, yeah, well, that's I the only question left. That's the question. I mean, it's, it's the tone of the film. Is, is this, is this 
especially coming after what we've the year we've had. But I do think that in terms of thoughtful, uh, beautifully realized, classic, deep science fiction, um, this. So I I just wish that they were making all six of Frank Herbert's books because what a journey that would be. <laughs> and uh, wow, you know, thousands of years of time and crazy evolution and all that. I, I, I just hope this movie – I want this movie to make a billion dollars so people – they make the second one and then they make Dune Messiah and Children of Dune and God Emperor of Dune and Heretics of Dune and Chapter House Dune because that would make me really happy. Well, and the reality is I think Warner Brothers believes in this property so much, and I think they understand. Look, Warner Brothers understands that it's a little bit of an uphill fight with with Dune. It's a property that hasn't had a lot of success previously in its, in its uh, live action adaptations. They understand it's more of a heady kind of thing. I don't even think Warner Brothers is setting the bar at a billion dollars. Like I don't think Dune needs to make a billion dollars for Warner Brothers to bunker down and move forward with more films. I think if the first Dune can make, I'll be honest with you, I think the first Dune can even lose a little bit of money. I, I will bet you that Dune could even lose a little bit of money and Warner Brothers would go, okay, okay. Because if people love this movie and they get enough people out there to almost break even or maybe even <clears throat> make a little bit of money, I think they're going to go, if everybody loved it, Great. Now we can move forward because now word of mouth is going to get out there that this movie was great and we'll do the second one and the second one will do even better. So I'm thinking if this movie makes like 500 million, I, I honestly, I think it guarantees a sequel. I think if they make 500, it guarantees a sequel. What do you think that number is? You know, you you might be right about that. Um, it, it depends how much they spend. I, I will never understand why they didn't just bite the bullet and make both both shoot the whole book and amortize the costs because it's the same same people same locations same visual effects you know it's it's it baffles me that they didn't want to pull the trigger and amortize those costs and make both movies at once and film the whole you know book. why you know <laughs> why two words or is it three words blade runner 2049 i that's know. why that's, I, I mean I know. like i think they can lose a little bit of money but they can't lose blade runner kind of money no, like they can't lose that because if they lose that much money, then they're they're screwed. But I don't know. We'll have to see what happens. Yeah. All right, guys. Question is, what do you think about that? I mean, it probably many of you guys know the book. So many of you already knew that her character doesn't really appear to later on. But maybe it caught some of you by surprise. Jump down into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. One more thing off the top before we get into our scripted out uh, main topics that we had planned in advance and this just dropped rob like 15 20 minutes before the show started today so i am a big fan actually of the marvel film ant-man i actually i love ant-man i think ant-man is fantastic it's it's so different from a lot of the rest of the MCU. I love the characters in it. I love the feel of it. It's just a great example of how the MCU knows how to change gears because not every single movie can be about saving the universe or saving the world. Sometimes you got to change gears and save the neighborhood or save the girl or save the family, right? And when you do things like that and you mix genres, you keep things fresh. And Ant-Man was a great example of that. I really liked Ant-Man 2 as well. Not nearly as much as Ant-Man 1, but I really liked Ant-Man 2 as well. And I got really excited 
and admittedly surprised, Rob, because I was one of the guys that said, I don't expect them to make an Ant-Man 3. I thought they kind of played out Paul Rudd's story. I honestly didn't expect them to make an Ant-Man 3. And then reports came out that they were doing it. Well, Rob, I also know, whereas I did not expect them to make an Ant-Man 3, I remember in our discussions about Endgame, it might have been Infinity War, where you did expect us to see a certain character named Kang the Conqueror. Yes, I did. And of did. course, that never happened. I didn't think we'd get Ant-Man 3. You thought we'd get Kang the Conqueror. We're just missing all over the place. But one of the shows that I'm watching right now that I'm actually pretty impressed with is uh, the new HBO show Lovecraft Country. And uh, the guy who stars in it is a guy by the name of Jonathan Majors, who's really I didn't really know much about him prior to this. He has really impressed me on this show quite a bit. Well, it is being reported this morning, just broke this morning in deadline that Jonathan Majors of Lovecraft Country is joining in a major role in Ant-Man 3, in the new Ant-Man. But here's the part. Now, that's big. That's big in and of itself, because I think this guy is great. I'm really enjoying him in this show. Here's the really interesting part, though. The studio had no comment. Remember, this is not Joey Billy Bob's gas station movie blog dot fart. This is Deadline. Yep. Deadline is writing, the studio had no comment, but sources close to the project say he is likely to play the supervillain Kang the Conqueror. As I bring up uh, Robert Myers' Burnett's face just to see that glow of joy coming over him as we speak. They're saying he's, number one, you got the dude from Lovecraft coming in Ant-Man 3. And I guess really, story number one is, okay, things are still moving forward with Ant-Man 3. That's good enough. That's good to hear. Story number two, they're adding an, a terrific talent right now who's in a really hot show uh, in Jonathan. He's joining the show, which is great. And story number three, and maybe the show stealer here, Rob, is that Deadline is saying their sources are telling. Now, remember, this isn't locked. This isn't Marvel confirming this. This isn't locked. But Deadline is saying that their sources are telling them that he's going to play Kang the Conqueror. Rob, if this is true, this raises a, a plethora of questions in my head. Number one of which is... You're going to introduce Kang in Ant-Man? Ant-Man? Like, if, if, you had, if you had told us, hey, Kang is going to be in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, guess, guess which movie? Ant-Man would have been like number 17, 18, or 19 on my guest list as to the movie, especially when you consider that Ant-Man, they have used Ant-Man to play small ball, you know? To play save his family, save his daughter, you know, to, to play that gear shift small ball, to bring in a villain like Kang and to have him be the villain in Ant-Man, a character, Rob, that a lot of people have been speculating could be the next big baddie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe now that Thanos is no longer a player. So we're talking about Kang coming into an Ant-Man played by Jonathan Majors. The possibilities abound. Rob, uh, I was I was fortunate enough to be the first person to tell you about this, see your reaction, but you've had a little a few minutes now to process this. What are the things that jump out to you here? What what's your where's your mind going right now when you hear about this news? Bruh. <laughs> I, I, I mean, this this makes me feel very ghibli, John. Very, very ghibli. I'll tell you why. 
You know, I was always thinking that Kang might show up as a as a second big bad in Avengers Endgame because we knew that it involved time travel because Kang obviously travels through time. Do you know that Kang, well, a version of Kang, was even the villain in the X-Men Star Trek The Next Generation crossover comic Second Contact? Did you know I that? I did not know that. Yeah, that's true. That was in the Marvel. Oh, I don't know if it's the Marvel Universe, but an alternate version of it. But now that the quantum realm has been established in Avengers Endgame as something you can now use to travel through time, travel through realities, this is the conduit through which Kang is probably going to make his move. And I think who better than, you know, the the cast and uh, uh, we love the Pims, you know, we, we love we love this cast. And I think that using the quantum realm, which is now how they've established time travel can work. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this would be Kang's conduit from the 40th century. You know, Kang isn't a superpowered being. He just has incredible uh, technology. And it makes sense. I think it makes sense. I think this is a great way to introduce him. You know, you start slow or you start with with I, I mean, I could see I could see the I could see Hank Pym, you know, if they bring Michael Douglas back, meeting Kang and Kang playing himself off as yes, you know, I'm a Great admirer of yours. I'm from the 40th century, and I've, you know, your 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 research has been the cornerstone of what I've done. And like, you know, really buddying up to him, sucking him in, and then you find out who Kang really is, and that he's this conqueror. I, there's so many different incarnations of Kang, going back to ancient Egypt and Rama Tut and Immortus in the future. I mean, there's so many ways they could go with this character because he's been so many different things. I think this is a great idea. I think it's great casting. Uh, I, I am Ghibli, John. Ghibli. Okay, so here's here's question number one I have for you then. Do you think Kang the Conqueror, if, I mean, again, we're operating on the assumption that, that Deadline's sources are correct, right? Mm. So we're going, and we we all have to acknowledge right now that they may not be, that, that this might be incorrect information. So let's just put the asterisk there saying we're all acknowledging that. That being said, Let's go with this for a moment. Let, let's go on the assumption for a moment that deadline sources are correct. He's playing Kang. Is Kang a one-time villain for an Ant-Man movie? Or is this, is this Ant-Man movie going to serve as the platform to introduce Kang to this MCU universe where he therein goes on to play a much bigger role. Speculate with us here, Rob. What are they going to do with Kang? Oh, <laughs> I think they have big plans for Kang. I'll tell you one of the things that they could do. Now, this is, let me fanboy out for a moment. But Kang has a history, obviously, in ancient Egypt. Uh, he had an incarnation, Rama Tut. He has a connection to Apocalypse. Now, Apocalypse was the first mutant. Yes, he was. And there, I mean, look, this is just me fanboying out, being like, eh, how do you introduce mutants into the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Well, you've got, now you've got the multiverse, and you've got Kang, who can travel through time, and Rama Tut is a big part of Kang's history, and because that's, he is Kang, uh, a version of him, and Kang has a history with Apocalypse. So by introducing Kang, they could show you somehow the birth of mutants on, if not our MCU, a version of through the multiverse. Now, this is totally out, out in left field. 
but not that far out in left field. I'm not at the left field wall, John. I'm about halfway <laughs> between the third baseline or the uh, the first baseline and left field, you know, um, or is that right field? Is right field? It depends where you're standing, right? From the plate. It's all anyway, about perspective. I'm making a bad baseball uh, analogy, but it it, 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 there's a lot they could do with introducing Kang because with dark side, dark side, with, <laughs> with Thanos gone, um, thinking DC fandom with Thanos gone, Kang is the kind of it. it it's he's not going to snap his fingers, but he's going to muck around with the timeline. He's going to change reality. He's going to do. He's going to change multiple realities. So I think they introduce him in Ant Man, and you think that it's oh, it's just going to be inter- no. I think Kang is going to be. Uh, he's going to if they're introducing Kang, the Met Multiverse of Madness. There's all these things that come into play, and I think it's exactly what the MCU needs going forward. They can make definite changes that will not repeat the threat of Thanos, and I think that's really interesting. You brought up – you touched on something there for a second, and I want to explore it because I heard somebody give a theory the other day that what if – because you mentioned Apocalypse. Mm Mm-hmm. Apocalypse is a Thanos, dark side, whatever level character. I would argue superior, but that that that's just me. That's just me. Um, that awesome. like even First Thanos and uh, Sabanur, my friend, and Sabanur. Um, I heard it floated that they may set up that he may not even be an X Man thing. They may set up Apocalypse as the next big major threat and maybe somebody like a Kang the Conqueror because you again you mentioned the connection that he had there maybe he becomes something of a harbinger of something mm-hmm. now the the thing going against that argument obviously is that by the time Disney acquired Fox Kevin Feige came out very famously and said listen I've already got my next year my next five years planned I've already got my next five years planned and so obviously that didn't involve apocalypse but it's it's something to consider question is guys Number and you know what's the unfortunate thing about all this is we're all look overlooking the main story here. I mean, you could argue that is the main story, but we're all overlooking that Jonathan Majors is joining Ant Man, and he himself could be Kang, which is unbelievable because this guy is great. So anyway, guys, the question is for you: What do you think about this news from Deadline? Do you think it's true? Do you think he's actually going to be Kang? Do you think he's going to play a major role in this film? Do you think it's just going to be an introduction for the MCU? A thousand possibilities. Jump down into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. Yes, I do think it's great casting. I think that's great casting for Kang. I mean, especially, you know, having caught the first two episodes of Lovecraft Country now, the the his performance is great, but I just love his face. You know, and Kang's face. I mean, I don't know how they would do the helmet. And, you know, he's, he's kind of got this blue mask on him. But you don't yep. – uh, he he would just – he would be badass as Kang. Yep. So I'm I'm down. It, oh, there are so many different possibilities here, guys. Question is for you. What do you think about this news? What do you think it means? What do you think it doesn't mean? Jump down to the comments below and leave us your thoughts. And I'm sure we'll probably hear from some of you in the live comments or questions part when we get to that. All right, guys. 
With all that down and out of the way, let's now move on to our planned main topics of the day. And how do we select our main topics of the day? Well, it's really rather simple. You see, you guys come up with them by going anytime 24-7 over to www.thejohncampiashow.com slash contact. Once you guys get there, you're going to see a form. Fill it out with your topic or question. It's totally free. Hit submit. And then maybe, just maybe, you might see your topic or question featured as a main topic here on the John Campia Show. With that down, let's get on to main topic number one. And our first main topic today gets submitted to us by ShazQuest. And ShazQuest writes, Hey John, Tenet just hit over $200 million at the worldwide box office. Yes, it did. But I saw that Variety state that the break-even point is around 400 and needs closer to 450 million for a profit with a 200 million dollar budget. And and by the way, if Variety did say that, Variety is incorrect. It's going to need a bigger number than that. But what are the chance chances of Tenet entering the profit zone? I loved Tenet and I've seen it five times in IMAX so far because I am from Montreal, and of course, you guys in Montreal, you of course have your movie theaters open, unlike us guys here in Los Angeles, unfortunately. And yes, one of the things that happened this week is Tenet has crossed the $200 million mark. Not bad, all things considered with the pandemic. A lot of people still don't even know the theaters are open, uh, restricted capacity, all that sorts of stuff. The first Penguin in the Waters made $200 million worldwide so far. Now remember, this thing's going to stay in theaters for a while, not to mention the fact that major, major markets like California, New York State, places like these are still Pretty much for all intents and purposes, they're not open yet. They're only slowly starting to reopen right now. We'll have to see what it is. But it did just make $6.7 million this past weekend at the North American box office. It did significantly better overseas, but only $6.7 at the domestic box office. This is not great news for them. And I think it speaks to a couple of things. Number one, I think it's great that it's crossed the $200 million mark. Honestly, if you had told them three weeks before dropping this thing that by this point it would have made $200 million, I don't think they'd be dancing any jigs, but I think they go, all right, that, that's, that's not completely unexpected, all things considered, when you take all the circumstances into consideration. There are even analysts, Rob, as being reported in The Hollywood Reporter, analysts who are saying everything they're seeing is a positive indication. They believe that everything that we're seeing, all if you read through the article that, yes, uh, I mean, a lot of people still don't even know the theaters are open. Some people still just a little bit nervous, but people just slowly starting getting over there, going to theater, blah, blah, blah. They say right now, everything's kind of a positive indication. And that's fine. That's fine. But I also believe there's one other challenge that Tenet is going to be facing here, which I think is part of the reason why you're looking at a 6.7 million, which only represents a 29% drop from the previous weekend, from the previous weekend proper. And that's not bad in and of itself. But honestly, Rob, I think one of the problems and challenges they're going to be facing is something that you and I, my friend, never would have thought would have been one of the challenges, which is it doesn't have the best word of mouth. People who are yep. seeing Tenant, and I have now seen Tenant. I went out to Orange County, went out to see Tenant. And I honestly, I got to be truthful here, Rob. I thought a lot of people might be exaggerating how bad 
sometimes the sound mix in the movie is and how difficult in some scenes it is to make out what characters are saying. I honestly thought people may be exaggerating a little bit. It's very much a problem. Now, there are some scenes in Tenet, Robin. I don't think you've had a chance to see it yet yourself. No. There are some scenes in Tenet where you can tell, okay, in this scene, we are clearly not meant to understand what a certain character is saying. There are those scenes. There are a couple of scenes in the movie where we're not supposed to be able to clearly understand what somebody else is saying. The problem is there are other scenes where we clearly are supposed to understand what's being said, and it's it becomes problematic. And I think a lot of people have unfortunately walked out of that theater. See, I, I was sitting there. I said this in my review, Rob. I'm watching this movie. I'm like, there is a brilliant movie on screen. But because I didn't hear what they were talking about in the last scene, I have no idea what's going on in this scene. You know what I mean? And so I was. I there were times in the movie that I felt like I was playing catch up with the movie, which takes away from your overall enjoyment. And I think there's a lot of people who just came out of Tenet going, hmm, yeah, it wasn't for me. I, I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't know what was happening and blah, 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 blah. And we're hearing a lot of people saying you got to see it twice to really get what it is that's going on. And I think that is hurting it. And so while everybody is talking about pandemic, understandably so, I think the inconvenient truth here is also a part of the lack of momentum building for a film like Tenet is the fact that it's just simply not getting the raving word of mouth that we have expected from a master like Christopher Nolan to have. So, And I don't believe it's the only thing. Right? I, I believe there's a grand big collection of things. And while I, I agree with a lot of the stuff like what the Hollywood Report, hey, this is all still good signs right now for the future health of where we're going. They actually upgraded AMC stock as a result of these numbers. Hey, that's great. I'm not discounting any of that. I'm not. I'm just saying here is underneath all the other problems, I think there's also a small problem of the fact that this is simply not a movie that a lot of people who are seeing it are telling all their friends that you also must run out and see this. And and that's that's unusual for Christopher Nolan movie. Normally, Christopher Nolan movies, all you got to do is get a few people to see it and then they're going to be raving to everybody about how to rush out and see it. And I just don't know that Tenet is going to get or is getting that sort of response. Rob, we are, as you and I both point out all the time, we are in unprecedented circumstances. So normal rules do not apply. I would argue normal watermarks also don't apply. But you see a number, even given the current circumstances, like a 6.7 million over the past weekend, still making it number one at the box office, but and crossing 200 million. What's your overall feelings on this with everything you're seeing right now? Well, I think it's disappointing. I, I, I you know, unfortunately, uh, this movie, I expected it to be a kind of mind blowing crowd pleaser the way Inception was. I mean, Inception made almost nine hundred million dollars worldwide and it became kind of a water cooler event. You know, people would go to Inception. They would debate Inception. They're still debating Inception a decade later. You know, is that top still spinning? Is Dom still in the dream world? I mean, who you know, who knows? Well, I think that this film, from everything I've read, again, I have not seen it, so I can't make a final decision. But you know, when you once something's gone into the pop culture and you can read different points of view and you can sort of gauge the zeitgeist around it, I think this film has been ultimately disappointing. And it hasn't lived up to the it hasn't lived up to what it promised 
the public. And uh, when you have a film that is so densely packed with exposition about what's actually happening that, again, you can't you can't hear it. And I understand what Nolan's going for, the verisimilitude of reality. And I get all that. But the problem is, you know, when we go to movies, the last place in the world that I think auteurist directors should should use as something to create a reality is to have people speaking and then not being able to understand them. We have the best sound mixing technology that's ever existed in human history. And to have a movie where your characters aren't heard, I think, now this is just my opinion, and somebody who's worked a lot in post, you got to make people, when they speak, and especially when they're talking about dense dialogue that deals with the plot and the actual machinations of what's actually happening, if your audience isn't with you and is asking themselves at any one point in the movie, wait, what did he say? You've got a problem. And I think that has that has given away, that that's sort of infected the word of mouth of this movie because a lot of people are talking about this. There's articles being written about how you can't hear and how this is a, a, a trait that goes all the way back to Dark Knight Rises for Christopher Nolan. And I think it's problematic. And I think you're right. I think that this movie failed to light the imagination of the worldwide audience on fire the way they hoped it would. And mm. that's that's a problem. You know, I, I, I let me throw in something about Tenet that I have not said yet, and I've been meaning to say this. How I like the trailers for Tenet. Having watched the movie, the trailers for Tenet, now that I've seen the movie, are far more brilliant than I than I realized. It's like after you see and it's it's hard to explain why without giving away spoilers. Yeah. But when you see the movie. And then you reflect back on the trailer. You go, oh, my God, what they did with that trailer was brilliant because I will I will tell you this without giving any details of the movie away. You watch that trailer. You do get a sense of what the trailer about what the movie's about. You get a sense of what the general thing that's going on is. They leave some mystery to it, though, like they don't answer all the questions in the trailers, which they shouldn't. And, and it's all true. But there's a whole nother side to this movie that they don't give away in the tra- So the trailers absolutely speak to the identity of the movie. It absolutely does. But it still holds back some major, major overall narrative things that were not revealed in the trailers at all. And it was after seeing the movie that I went, holy shit, I really respect the trailers for Tenet now. And uh I wish I came out of the movie really being more overwhelmed by 10. I need to see it again. I, I do need to see it again. So I think Anne and I are going to rush out to, or we're going to run out to Anaheim and uh, go watch it again. But we will see. That's where I went to go see it, by the way. I went out mm. to go watch it in Anaheim. It was, it was a good experience, by the way. At the We went to the Orange 30, the Orange 30 in Anaheim, not far from Disneyland. Anyway, guys, question is, what do you think? About where we're at with Tenet right now. Crosses 200 million, but still not doing so great domestic. What do you attribute that to more than other things? Jump down to the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number two, shall we? And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by Patrick Brown, who writes, Hello, John. Hello there, Patrick. Chris Hemsworth uh, recently decided, wait a second, where did I go? I lost my place here. Give me one second. 
Uh, there we go. Uh, Chris Hemsworth recently did an interview saying how he has no plans to retire as Thor. This makes sense because the truth is, aside from Extraction, which according to Netflix is their most watched original film, and it's not very good to be. I, I, I like. I'm sorry. I know a lot of people liked it. I thought it was a, just a flat out bad movie, but whatever. Uh, aside from Extraction, which according to Netflix is their most watched original film, all of Hemsworth's films outside of the MCU haven't been successful either at the box office or with awards. So why would he want to give up the one thing that's working for him? What are your thoughts on his interview? All right, thanks a lot for writing that in. And yes, you know, one of the big questions that's been surrounding the MCU has obviously been with people like Scarlett Johansson apparently exiting the MCU. Chris Evans apparently exiting the MCU. Robert Downey Jr. apparently exiting the MCU. Uh, Mark Ruffalo saying right now there's not even any solid play. He may pop up in She-Hulk, but he, he says we got. I've had no meetings. I don't. Maybe he's gone. That all the original Avengers, their contracts were ending, and Chris Hemsworth's contract did end as well. But clearly, he re-upped and signed again because we got Thor Rag or Thor: Love and Thunder coming, which is another Thor movie. Well, again, the speculation then turned to: Will this be his final one? But he's saying, nope, no way. This is not my last go-round playing Thor. As a matter of fact, he came out and said the, the following. This is in the Variety article. When asked if Thor would retire, if, if Thor would retire after the upcoming movie, Hemsworth asserted that it would not be the end for his character. Are you crazy? I'm not going into any retirement period. Thor is far too young for that. He's only 1,500 years old, he said. It's definitely not a film that I say goodbye to. Uh, it's definitely not a film that I say goodbye to this Brandon. At least, I hope so. Because, of course, ultimately, he's not the one who's in charge of making that decision. That'll be Disney. Why is somebody like Chris Hemsworth... Being so adamant, as you read the rest of the article, he's very enthusiastic about it. He says, I am nowhere near done playing Thor. I'm, you're going to get more Thor out of me. So why is he so gangbusters to continue to play it when you've had some people like Chris Hemsworth, or sorry, like Chris Evans saying, ah, it's time to move on from Captain America. Or you got people like Robert Downey Jr. saying, ah, it's time to move on from Iron Man. And by the way, you're going to see Chris Evans, Robert Downey Jr., uh, you're going to see them all back. They're going to be back again. Maybe not this year. Maybe not next year. Maybe not in three years. They'll be back. Mark my words. Anyway, what is it about Chris Hemsworth that goes, I just love this character. Listen, has he had any big, huge box office breakouts, Rob? No, he hasn't had any outside of the MCU. He hasn't had the biggest box office breakouts, but he's had some critical success. He's had critical success. What's that Ron Howard uh, movie he did with Daniel Brühl? Uh, the race car, the true story based on uh, the race cars. I'm trying to remember the actual name of the movie, and I'm freezing on it because I, I love that movie. I want to uh, say and, Driven, but that's not that's the Rennie Harlan movie. Yeah, that that's a no, different. I, it, I love I, that movie too. It's um, yeah, um, it's fantastic. Anyway, go check that out. He has had critical success. Um, he's been seen as being quite good, but yeah, he hasn't had any big box office hits. That's fine. He's not the producer of those movies. Whatever. I think it comes down to a very simple answer, Rush. Rob. Rush, thank you. Fabulous movie. If you have not seen it, check it out. You got Zemo and Thor in it together. Daniel Brühl. I think Daniel Brühl got like several major no award nominations for that role uh, as well. But here's the point. I think the simplest answer here is probably the most apt, which is this. Chris Hemsworth loves playing this character. Now, I think like many other actors, 
you play the same character for too long, maybe you start to get a little bit fatigued. And I think he was starting to get a little bit fatigued when it came to Thor. I, I think he was getting a little bit fatigued. But now then you hear him talking about Taika Waititi coming along and bringing new dimensions to Thor and breathing new life into Thor. And the audiences love Thor Ragnarok. But more importantly, Chris Hemsworth himself, it breathed new life into his love for the character. And it got him excited about the character again. And according to him, he said the script for Thor Love and Thunder, he said, this is way better than Thor Ragnarok. I can't wait to get on set and start shooting this thing. I'm like, I'm dying to get out there and start shooting this thing. If you can keep his enthusiasm level at, at that level, Rob, then yeah, it's not surprising to me that he wants to continue playing it. He has great success playing it. He's had great personal satisfaction playing it. And it's just a role that really has made him a household name. So I'm not surprised to hear this. And I fully expect, even though it'll be Disney's call and they could decide to retire Thor any minute. But even as we got to the end of Endgame, we started seeing Thor realizing, or we started seeing Marvel realizing, hey, we can use Thor in a lot of different ways. Put him on a ship with the Guardians of the Galaxy. Do this with them. Do that. I mean, he is he is a Swiss army knife of a character that you can use him seriously, dramatically, tragically, lightheartedly, comedically. You can use this character in a lot of different ways. I expect we're going to see Chris Hemsworth playing Thor for at least another three or four movies, to be honest with you. Anyway, Rob, you saw this interview and the stuff that Chris Hemsworth was saying. What's your take on it? First of all, can we just talk about how Chris Hemsworth is like my hero? He's first, he's incredibly handsome. He's married to Elsa Pataki, who was, we saw her in Fast Five, who, would, who wouldn't want to be married to her. He's got three kids. Apparently, he's like the nicest guy in the world. He's 37 years old, so he can stay. He can, he can work that Thor bod out for, you know, who knows, maybe all the way till he's 50. Here's a guy that I think is one of the smartest dudes in the entertainment business. By all accounts, He's one of the nicest guys in the world, but he also knows that that this is a role of a lifetime for someone, and what he can do is he can get paid. He'll end up making Robert Downey Jr. money if he sticks with his franchise, even if another 10 years go by. I mean, that guy's probably, I don't know what he's making as Thor, but every film his price goes up, and if he does a Love and Thunder, I could see him playing Thor for the next 15 years, because he knows he's got to get what he can, when he can, how he can. And right now he's still young enough that stay, you know, working out, not a problem. He has a jet-setting great lifestyle. He's got a great family. I even heard once that one of the things he first did when he made his first big – like he only made like 150 k to do the first Thor movie. But when he got a bigger paycheck, the first thing he did was like he paid his parents' debts. He, he bought his parents – he made them debt-free and got them a house. I mean, here's a guy that knows how good life is. He's going to get what he can when he can. I don't know. I, I think he's going to stay in the MCU for as long as he possibly can. And like you said, he's the Swiss Army knife of a character. So you can do – who doesn't smile when Chris Hemsworth comes on screen? You know, I mean, I, I think that I, there's a lot of people that got pissed off with Fat Thor in Endgame, but that's only because they love him so much. And, and, you know, they set Fat Thor up to be transformed, whether it's in Guardians of the Galaxy 3 or Thor Love and Thunder. Man, I'm telling you, I wish I was that dude because, wow, what a life he has. And you're right. The constant stories you hear around Hollywood are that he is one of the, simply the nicest guys out there. 
He just has a good head on his shoulders. He he likes like family is number one to him. He spends exorbitant amounts of time with his kids. That how he gets time with his kids is always a part of his negotiation process and any project he's involved in. I mean, it's just nothing but good stories I hear from the dude. I, I've had a chance to meet and interview him a couple of times. He's always jovial. My favorite, some of you guys have heard me talk about this. My favorite experience ever in this career that I've had was I I can't remember if it was for Ultron or if it was for one of the other films, but I went to interview, I, I was interviewing Chris Evans and Chris Hemsworth together. And I walked into the room and I, you normally get about three to five. They gave me five minutes. You normally get three to five minutes. So I go in there and I sit down and they were fixing something on one of the cameras. So we had about 10 minutes just to sit down and chat for a bit. And it was nonstop laughing. Like it was nonstop laughing for those 10 minutes. So then try to get serious. And many of you have seen this interview that it's up on YouTube. We try to get serious. And I, st and I tried my best, Rob. I tried my best to be a professional. All right. I was trying to be a professional. And she's okay, let's do this interview. All right, guys, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, I, I turned to Chris. It's like in the first 30 seconds of the interview, I go to Chris Evans and I'm saying, okay, so like you have done a terrific job um, really kind of embodying the the spirit of who Captain America is and, and, and what the values, the core values, but also a man in transition. And you really are a, a great epitome of this character. And then Chris Hemsworth interrupts, is he? <laughs> and and once he said that, all hell broke loose. All hell broke. And like for the next number of minutes, the, the, for the rest of the interview, it was just the two of them. Like I thought they were going to pass out laughing. It was one of my favorite experiences of doing any interviews ever. Um, if you guys can find it up in the chat, if you guys can find that interview and leave a link to it. But even what you see in the interview is nothing compared to what was when the cameras weren't rolling, um, they, they were fun. And, and, and Chris Hemsworth has always been that he's always been jovial and fun and engaging. And it's just great to see. And I hope you're right, Rob. I hope we get to see Chris Hemsworth in this role for another 15 years. Anyway, guys, the question for you is what do you think about this news? Maybe you're played out on Thor. Maybe you think, yeah, Chris Hemsworth is great as Thor, but it's time to move on to other characters. Maybe you're like me and you're thinking, no, man, give us as much Chris Hemsworth as Thor as you can possibly get. Where's your thinking on this? Jump down into the comment section below and leave us your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down and out of the way, let's now move on to our third and final main topic today. And our third and final main topic today gets submitted to us simply by Hen. And Hen writes the following. Hey, John, DC Fandom Part 2 has happened recently, and there was a Flash movie Q&A. And the director said that the Flash will restart everything and will not forget about anything. And it will feature a lot of DC characters. What do you think about these comments? And does this get you excited for the movie? All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yes, DC fandom, you may have forgotten about it because for, I don't know what their logic was. They separated day two of DC fandom by three weeks, separated from DC fandom part one. That was stupid, but I did like the fact that they made it two separate days, one day all for Q and A's. That was kind of smart, but you may have forgotten that they just had day two. Part of which was this Q&A with the Muschietis, the producer and director of the Flash movie. And yeah, they said something. Now, here's there's a couple things going around about it. One of the things is getting the most attention 
when really I think something else they said is, is what should be getting the most attention. But anyway, this comes to us from Batman News that writes, Andy Muschietti confirmed the film is inspired by the Flashpoint storyline, but is not a direct adaptation. That's huge. That's huge. Because a lot of people have been talking about the next Flash movie, about how it's going to unfold in terms of how that relates to the original Flashpoint storyline, thinking this is just going to be Flashpoint. Muschietti has come out and said, this is definitely inspired by Flashpoint, but it is not a direct um, adaptation, which is kind of exciting because that means anything could happen in this movie. It's not going to just be confined to what happened in the Flashpoint story. Anyway, he promised you would still have a lot of surprises in the film. Meanwhile, Barbara Muschietti, his wife and producer, has perhaps the most telling answer of the Q&A. As she said, there are a lot of DC characters in it. <laughs> to me, that's the big story. That's the big line. There are a lot of DC characters in it. Flash is the superhero of this film because he is the bridge between all these characters and timelines. And in a way, in a way, she says, in a way, it restarts everything and doesn't forget anything. So remember, that wasn't Andy who said that. That was Barbara who said that, the producer of the film. And I like the way she says, now, in a way, it restarts everything and blah, blah, blah. Because some people, Rob, I've seen a lot of people just taking that term, saying, oh, did you hear the, they're saying that this restarts everything. It's like, no, that's not exactly what they said. They said kind of, in a way, it sort of restarts everything, but remembers everything. Actually, you know what, Rob, the, the website Batman News, which is where I read uh, this main thing of, they had a really good observation about what that all meant. And they said the following. Um, let's see, where is, where is, okay, here, here it is. Um, they, their observation was this. While there has been some talk of the Flash serving as a hard reset on the DCEU, it's beginning to sound as though it is simply going to say that all live-action DC projects are valid. You just have to accept that they don't all exist in the same universe. Which I love that observation from Batman News because that's completely in line with what Walter Hamada said at DC Fandom Part 1. When he was talking about multiverse, because look, they're, yeah, they're, they're all separate, but they're all together. If you want to think that they're connected, go ahead and think that they're all connected because it's a multiverse. So all this stuff can, that's why we can have the Robert Pattinson Batman movie and we can have Ben Affleck popping up in the Flash movie and all that kind of stuff. It gives an underlying reason why all this is there. So I honestly think that the main news there, Rob, is them saying that there's going to be a lot of DC characters. So we start wondering, is Henry Cavill going to pop up in there? Are we going to see Cyborg, despite all the drama that's been going on lately? Are we going to see Cyborg pop up in there? Is Ben Affleck's Batman not the last piece of the puzzle we're going to see? Are we going to see Tom Welling's Superman pop up in there? I mean, maybe yes, maybe no, but he's they've already drawn some kind of connection with him in the CW universe, and they've drawn the connection between the movie universe and the CW universe with Crisis on Infinite Earths. So, I mean, that you could say that. I mean... It really does open up a lot of possibilities that have no long-reaching ramifications because of the multiverse stuff. And that's something they seem to be leaning into. Any Rob, you read all these comments, right, about it. It's being influenced by Flashpoint or inspired by Flashpoint, but not necessarily Flashpoint. A lot of different DC characters. It restarts things, but kind of doesn't. Re what out of all this stands out to you the most? And what do you think is the most important thing that was said there? 
Well, one, I find this to be a, a whole lot of fun because as a lifelong DC Comics fan, uh, I think that's really great that they're leaning into this multiverse aspect of the story. But I didn't expect them to directly adapt the Flashpoint storyline because there's things in it I don't think they're going to do. But I love the idea. I, I don't think we're going to see like CW characters or television characters. I think they need to keep this feature film oriented. But then again, you, I mean, you never know. But I wouldn't think ultimately that they would do that because they've already got enough in terms of feature film characters that they can utilize. But I think we might see characters we've never seen before from the DC universe on film, you know, cause they can introduce all kinds of people in, in brief roles. So to me, it just, it's just really exciting. And to have a filmmaker, you know, that Warner brothers trusts that has now a great earning relationship with the studio and Muschietti's made some money for them. And so he's got some power as a director and him and his producing partner, obviously, they're simpatico. So I think we're going to get a film that is going to be surprising, and I think it's going to be a hell of a lot of fun. And I'm really excited for this movie now. Let me ask you this, because I'm seeing I'm seeing some other outlets really running, like with headline, the Flash movie restarts everything, and. Like again, when I when I read what Barbara actually said, and I look at the lines, and in a way, she said it it restarts everything and doesn't forget anything. Like personally, I look at that as sort of suggesting Rob that I think yeah, for it's going to be a new beginning for Flash, or it's going to represent something new for somebody. I and and maybe I'm looking at this from too narrow of a field of view on this, but I read what she said, saying you know, in a way, it kind of restarts things. I'm I'm not seeing her at all saying that the DCEU is being blown up and starting from right. scratch for all the characters. So I I don't know. Am I because I'm seeing some other outlets and some some online discussion basically leaning into that saying, "Oh no, they said it's restarting everything." What do you think they meant by in a way they're re it's restarting things? while also remembering everything like what, what do you think that sort of meant the mystery of bounds here rob what does it mean do you think see i think a lot of the time the fan community it, they they forget to take reality and the business aspects of movie making and 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 combine that with storytelling you know they when they think when they, when you hear people say oh it's restarting everything ooh that means it's going to be like the ms it becomes you're starting to think about it as the M oh it's going to be like the mcu the dceu is starting up again I think what what I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think what she's saying is that it's sort of now that we're embracing the idea of a multiverse, we don't necessarily and Walter Hamada said that too at DC Fandom, we're leaning into that idea. That means this limited idea of what's the DCEU going to be is no longer we're establishing that listen, we don't have to do that anymore. You know, we're starting over. We're telling you or 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 sort of giving you this new idea that we don't have to have films. It's not important whether that is this in the DCEU or not. It's all in the DCEU. We're now establishing the multiverse, meaning that the Joker movie can take place in its own on its own earth in its own timeline. And that's its own thing. But. It's part of a multiverse. So the question of is this in the DCEU or not is no longer relevant. That's what I think she was saying is that we're, we're starting over. So you're, you're, the way you think about cinematic universes, at least for DC, has changed. You don't have to worry about that anymore 
because now we have the multiverse. So all of it is part of it, all of it. And, yeah. and whether or not there's crossover, it really doesn't matter. You shouldn't be concentrating on that. That's not what's important. Thank you. Now, I, I said for a long time, one of the things that I really preferred about the way DC was handling their overall properties as compared to Marvel, I love the fact that for a while they had a very clear wall between their movie world and their television world, right? The CW stuff and whatever else was not a part of the movie world. They were keeping those separately. I loved that because it didn't apply any handcuffs to what the TV shows could do creatively or what the movies do creatively. You don't have to worry. Well, we can't do this in the TV show because that contradicts what they did in the movie. It was totally separate things. When I saw Walter Hamada talking about multiverse, it really sounded to me like this is a way that we can maintain those walls maintain that freedom for the people making the television shows. The people making the television shows don't have to give in this multiverse idea. They don't have to give one lick of thought to what's happening in the movies. They don't have to worry about it in the movie universe. They can blow up Chicago like they do in transformers that doesn't now have to play out. They can do whatever they want in the TV shows. So they're the way Walter Hamada seems to be describing multiverse. It's almost like giving them that creative freedom to really keep things separate but if they want to cross them over, given a certain idea, that they can. And I love the way you put it, Rob. It's no longer something – it's not even a question we have to worry about anymore. Right. Are they in the same universe? Is something we shouldn't have to address. And to me, that's kind of part of the brilliance of what they're doing. It allows them license to do something crossing over if and when they want to. But at the same time, it maintains a massive distinction between Robert Pattinson's Batman world – and what's going on in Joaquin Phoenix's Joker movie, they're completely separate, 100% separate. And if they wanted to cross something over with CW's Arrow and Pattinson's Batman, they have an excuse. They have a built-in mechanism to do it without losing creative freedom. And to me, that's where the real genius of this lies. And uh, I think it's kind of brilliant. So anyway, guys, question is, what do you think about this whole thing that they're talking about? Do you, do you like this idea? Do you not? What do you, how do you interpret what the Muschietis were saying at Fandom Day 2? Jump down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys, with all that stuff down and out of the way, let's now move on and start taking your live questions. Once again, if you want to get a live question on the show, simply go to the tip link that's in the top of the description of this video or use it manually, streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You'll be getting your question or comment on the show if it's reasonable. And of course, you'll be supporting the show at the same time. All right, let's dive on into it right now. And we're going to get things started off here with Willow, who writes... Since you're making a documentary on the movie on movie trailers, would you happen to know how trailer narration got phased out? Is it considered cheesy nowadays to have an epic voice go in a world in a trailer? You know what, uh, Willow? It's it's almost creepy. It's almost as if you've seen a screening of my movie. Uh, we do address that specifically in the film. We do address that specifically in a small part of the movie. And so I don't want to give anything away. Uh, but yeah, there is a big overall thing, overall movement. The one... I'd say it was already well in the midst of phasing out. But Rob, I don't know if you remember this trailer. There was a trailer for Comedian. Yeah. For Jerry Seinfeld's Comedian, in which they really mocked the trailer voiceover stuff. In a world. No, not in a world. Two cops. No, there's no cops. La, la, la. And they really made fun of it. And, and while... 
the move the movie trailer narrator was already well into the process of being phased out by that point. If you had if you wanted to point to one moment where the real nail was kind of put in the coffin of it, I think that you might be able to point at that one comedian trailer as kind of being I mean it was already dying off, but that was kind of the the nail in the coffin. How did you see that? Well, I, I you know, I think also I think it's a stylistic choice. I mean, honestly, it did get to the point where once that trailer came out and and <laughs> you had the whole idea of voiceover being mocked in a trailer, uh, I mean, you know you're sort of at the end of the line. And I think now, from a creative standpoint, we're just in a place now where where the movie trailer voiceover is it's it's part of a bygone era. That doesn't mean it's not going to come back. But I think audiences it, it comes it, there's a level of sophistication now. People storytelling has evolved. Like you don't need to hear somebody go in a world when you're establishing shots of a trailer show you like an alien planet. You know, you can put music and it's like, "Oh, we know that's in a world already. We 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 don't we don't need someone to tell us anymore." I mean, I think the the conventional wisdom used to be that, "Well, we need to tell people these things so they so they get it." So audiences understand. Well, audiences understand now. You know, they don't need somebody right. to tell you. And, and I think what's it, yeah, and what's interesting is you now trailers I think are more cinematic, and and they're they're more reliant on feeling, and uh, you don't need to be told anymore how to feel. They use uh, one of the things they're using now, which I really don't like very much, is r new versions, cover versions of pop songs. I mean, they certainly did that in the Dune trailer. You heard Pink Floyd's um, Eclipse off Dark Side of the Moon. I mean, it's it's like, okay, let's use a redone pop song to immediately convey emotion for your audience. I think that's sort of supplanted the voiceover narration in modern trailers, and it'll give way to something else. So it's just a matter of, of, of I don't know, style and the times and fashion, really. All right, let's move on here. Next up comes to us from Dave Atkins, who writes, Tony Curran has uh, a hefty comic book slash novel presence crossing multiple properties, played Thor's grandpa, Boar, in Dark World. I mean, yeah, very, very tiny, 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 almost extra roles. Yes. Uh, Leave Extraordinary Gentleman, Invisible Man. That was more soon. Blade 2 is Priest, X-Men First Class, Irish Gangster, uh, Daredevil Season 2, Voltron Voice, and Spielberg's Tintin. And by the way, of course, he had an appearance in Sons of Anarchy, uh, which is where I really know him from. He's just one of these, he's one of these actors who has found a way without ever becoming a name of just building a really successful career for himself. <laughs> like just building a really successful career, playing a lot of smaller stuff. And uh, every once in a while stands out. But you know what? He's a talented dude. And I wouldn't be surprised if he actually breaks out one of these days. Uh, Dave Atkins also writes, Thoughts on Wonder Boys 2020. You know that movie where Michael Douglas, Hank Pym, catches Robert Downey Jr., Iron Man, uh, in bed uh, doing the nasty with Maguire, Spidey. Makes you wonder uh, what that Stark internship really was all about. And don't forget, Katie Holmes from Batman was also in that as well. I liked Wonder Boys. Rob, I, I don't know if you ever had a chance to get around to seeing Wonder Boys. I personally really liked Wonder Boys. Have you ever seen it? And if so, what are your thoughts on I, it? I loved it. How can you not love Wonder Boys? My God. <laughs> what a fun, yeah. what a delightful film. I mean, I, based on a book, what great performances. You got, I mean, Jeff Bridges. You got the Bridges brothers. You got Michelle <laughs> Pfeiffer. I mean, God, 
Wait, so as are, I think we're talking about different movies. Hold on a second. Oh, because I think you're talking about. Are you, are you talking about the fabulous Baker Boys? Oh, that's what I was talking about. Yes, you're talking about the Baker. We're talking about. We're talking. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my that's the, fault. <laughs> we're 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 talking about Wonder Boys. Um, Michael Douglas, Tobey Maguire, where he plays. Uh, where uh, Michael Douglas plays like an English professor. Yes. and he's got a that book movie, that he has. I don't like as much as Fabulous Baker Boys. Yes, but Fabulous Baker like Boys it. is great, though. I love the Fabulous <laughs> yeah, Baker yeah. Boys. Yes, no Wonder Boys. Yes, where the, the pot smoking professor movie. Yes, yes I, I like Wonder Boys. <laughs> I don't know why I was thinking Fabulous Baker Boys. Perhaps I just had Michelle Pfeiffer on the brain. But no, I like Wonder Boys. I, I think Wonder Boys is a really – it's uh, isn't Wonder Boys – it's Curtis Hansen, right? After, oh, I can't. After L.A. LA maybe I'm confident. just all – I honestly cannot remember. I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be surprised though. All right. But, next up. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, Anonymous writes, I know you're not a major video game player, but have you ever played Banjo-Kazooie? Nope. And its sequel, Banjo-Tooie. These games were ahead – uh, we're ahead of their time. Unfortunately, you're going to have to play it on the Xbox One, which requires a controller. I have never even heard. I'll be honest with you. I've never even heard of the games. I've, I've never even heard. Rob, are you familiar with Banjo Kazooie or Banjo Two? I have never played that game. I have not, but I will keep my eyes open for it, though, Anonymous. Thank you for the recommendation. All right. Uh, F Storefront writes, One thing that people aren't factoring in when they say delay everything is that 2021 is already overstuffed. Fast 9, Eternals, Ghostbusters, Morbius, Venom, Top Gun, Suicide Squad, Batman, Shang-Chi, and now Candyman. I mean, uh, is there going to be enough money to go around? I mean, listen, that is something that we've touched on here before, is that you got to understand, 2021 was already fully programmed. It was already fully programmed, fully booked, all that kind of stuff. It was already a full year when all these movies started getting thrown also into 2021. So, yes, in a year, F9, Eternals, Ghostbusters, Morbius, Venom, Taka, yeah, yeah, that's plenty of room in a year for all these movies. The trick comes when you're talking about dropping all these into a year that already had all of its movies already planned, and it's going to be interesting. We That's why I've said a number of times we're going to be feeling the effects of what's gone on here with the COVID-19 in the movie world for a long time to come. Even when we ever get this pandemic in our rearview mirror, we're going to, for a while, still be seeing the after effects of what happened as a, result of uh, as a result of COVID in the movie theater with a lot of movie scheduling. That's still going to become an issue. So that is going to be an issue there. Uh, F. Stormfront also writes, in my opinion, the only films I don't see getting delayed are the Fox movies, i.e. Free Guy and Death on the Nile, because they're contractually obligated uh, to for theatrical yes but that doesn't mean they can't get delayed just like just because they have a contract to be released theatrically like new mutants is doesn't mean that it can't be delayed so that has nothing to do with it and disney doesn't care about them too much i think disney does care about them make no mistake disney cares about those movies they really do uh and bond because it plays better internationally than the u.s um i'll be honest rob i don't know that i th see any movie being off the table as far as getting delayed, like even Black Widow, which I think, I think will keep its release date. That's not off the table. Everything is movable. Everything is movable. And I think they're right. Bond, you've pointed this out yourself several times, Rob. Bond does play better internationally than it does domestically. And if we continue to see big growth, like recovering growth uh, at the box office internationally, that could very well make them feel confident enough to – I, I mean, I won't be surprised. I won't be surprised if Bond does get released on time. 
But I also wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't. Rob, do you see any movie right now being off the table as being not up for negotiation? It can't be moved because I, I don't right now. No, I think they all can be moved. And, and I think, you know, it, it comes down to the fact that we're dealing with movies that they have to make a certain amount of money or there's a there, there's a tremendous loss for everybody that worked on the film and the studios and the people that put up the money for these movies. I mean, it's not it's not that they're too big to fail. They're too big to not fail. They have to be able to earn out or the studios that made them and the people that invested in these movies are going to be in real trouble. So they have to – I think everything can be moved. Everything is, is, is on the table right now. Yeah. Again, that's not to say that I don't think they will be moved. I'm just saying I, I think this all can be moved. Again, being contractually obligated to release those films, that just means they're going to be released. It just means they're not going to go to Disney+, Plus, at least not initially. Uh, the uh, – my gat writes – uh, first time I saw John was on AMC Movie Talk where he is yelling, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is not Robin. I remember that very well. That used to frustrate me so much. I would say, oh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Robin. He's not Robin. Anyway, uh, and I didn't like him. After a few episodes of Movie Talk, I started to feel that Campy and Schnepp were the coolest dudes on there. I've uh, been watching ever since. Well, thank you so much, man, and thanks for taking us down memory lane. I'm glad you're still with us today, my friend. All right, Jared Leon writes, Hey, John, longtime fan of the show. Thank you so much. Finish the Netflix show away. I want to watch that. That's the new um, uh, 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 multiple Academy Award winner, Hillary Swank. That's the new Hillary Swank show. And I finally saw the preview for it. And I'm like, okay, this looks really good. I want to watch this. I finally watched the Netflix show away. And wow, probably one of the best shows I've seen in a long time. Everybody's acting was turned up to 10. Hillary Swank back on her game. Have you heard of it or seen it yet? No, I, I, I have not seen it yet. But Ann and I both, we saw, we watched the preview for it. As we were getting ready to watch, I think Kingdom. We were getting. I, by the way, I finally watched Kingdom, Rob. Oh, the, dude. Uh, the and zombie. Did you love it? Oh, I, okay. I, I in one day I got through season one, and I'm, I, I'm one or two episodes into season two. I'm loving it, but it was for that that I saw a preview for Away, and I got. And then I instantly said, "Yep, this is one I've got to watch." So it's it's on my watch. Have you watched seen anything for Away yet, Rob? You know, I haven't. I really do want to see it, but um, and that's probably next on my list. You know, and I'll watch anything with space in it. <laughs> I mean, they're going to Hillary Swank's going to Mars. Sold. <laughs> so, Done. Done. I'm, I'm in. in. Yeah, I, and I am absolutely in on that. All right, Canadian singing Posty writes. Uh, hello, Canadian singing Posty. Hey, John and Rob. For Tenet, I too experienced the odd sound mix issues. Not sure about those who say they heard all the dialogue. Also, surprised you didn't take us to the School of Campia for the new Oscar rules. Uh, wanted to see those fantastic diagrams. Well, I know. I think I think the charts of the new rules kind of explain themselves. Um, again, I I was very happy. I, I'm very happy with the new Oscar rules, and they make perfect sense. Uh, and I think anybody, uh, a lot of the people who you see kind of raging against it, not everybody, but some of them you can just tell by what they're saying, they haven't actually read the rules. Like, if you read the rules, you know, because everybody's saying, oh, 1917 never would have been nominated then. Uh, actually, if you read the rules, you would have known that, yes, 1917 would have qualified and it would have met the rules. But at, at any rate, so so there's all that. But yeah, I'm with you, uh, Canadian Singing Posty. There are issues with dialogue. Again, it has to be pointed out that there are one or two scenes in Tenet where I, as, a, as an audience member, clearly understood I'm not supposed to fully understand what that person is saying right now because 
that's part of the narrative. So I got that. But there were also many places in the movie that we were supposed to understand what was being said. And at least in our theater, we just couldn't. A lot of us in the theater just couldn't. And so that does become an issue. And I hope it's something that they address moving forward. All right. Michael H. Jones writes, uh, donates $20 to the channel. Thank you so much, Michael H. Jones, for supporting the channel on that level, man. I appreciate that, dude. Uh, after watching Umbrella Academy, I love Umbrella Academy, was looking for something to watch before Lucifer started. Remember your top three favorite of all time? Started watching Sons of Anarchy, just finished it, have not watched any of Lucifer or the boys. I had to finish Sons of Anarchy. Well, first of all, I'm thrilled that you're watching Sons of Anarchy. It is a, a top three all-time favorite show for me. My number one favorite show of all time is Ronald D. Moore's Battlestar Galactica. And then number two and three in no particular order are Sons of Anarchy and Starz's adaptation of Spartacus. Those are my all-time three favorite shows. I'm so glad you got on, on, on that. And I'm so glad that you watched Umbrella Academy. Umbrella Academy, Rob, we've talked about this. Umbrella Academy, Doom Patrol, and The Boys. Three wildly weird and different kind of superhero genre takes. And I, I think like the best, some of the best stuff that's on TV right now. Have, have you watched, did you watch episode four of Umbrella Academy yet? Or so not Umbrella Academy, uh, uh, the boys yet? I did. And I'll tell you, I liked it, but I didn't think it was as memorable as say the airplane episode. People are equating it to the airplane episode. Of uh, season one, the airplane, the air, the commercial airliner episode of season one, right. but I, um, I really liked it. But you know, it's a very emotional episode. I, I oh, it was yeah. dealing with, it was it was a different kind of of an episode, and I really, it definitely ratcheted up the emotional stakes, especially with Butcher, and I, um, it, this show. The Boys is about a lot more than what it just appears to be. It's an incredible yep. film about the film, incredible series about the state of all of America. Yeah, man, it's it's pretty amazing. Um, yeah. And I'll tell you one thing: I think Homelander might be one of the scariest characters that's ever been on television. God, they just keep getting freakier and freakier. Uh, with I, that. I mean, <sighs> I, it terrifies me. But although you know I do, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Finish your thought there. If they do what they did and say a comic book like Miracle Man, they're going to flip the script. But Homelander, his his child, um, might be the only thing that can save the world. <laughs> I, you know, I was saying that I think this re most recent episode, episode four of this season, was probably my favorite episode of the series so far. But I stand corrected because you're right that 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 air that airplane episode from season one. That's still my number one. That is still but, my number but, one. I mean, but this just, one became big, my second favorite. Yeah, I mean, but that's like plot and that's got a lot of horrifying, fun stuff in it. But in terms of emotional resonance and really a gut punch, man, it, it, in a different way. In yeah. a, like it, 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 this show just – I just love the fact that they are not afraid to go into these very – in the guise of a superhero show, they are not pulling their punches, man. And we are seeing some incredible drama and really high stakes and really questions that uh, any other TV show would would be proud to even be able to get one episode a year as emotional or connecting with an audience the way this last episode did. And dude, that final scene with uh, – I won't give away any details – Homelander and himself – 
I, I feel like every episode I'm going, oh, I'm screaming at the TV. What the fuck? Like, I, I feel like th- this, uh, this show has me doing that. Like, every episode and that might have been the biggest wtf well that was i mean the darkness of that whole that that they introduced that plot point the darkness of what that was man that was some seriously uh, seldom has a tv show gone into that area before and it, it is nuts anyway before before i start giving spoilers away let's move on shall we thank you again for that michael very much man thanks for sending that in and i'm glad you're enjoying those shows uh, augie boyas writes hey john did you see chris evans nude photo if so what did you think in my opinion that's uh, uh, that's america's penis i i'm not going to talk about nonsense like that i mean that's that's just ridiculous and i i don't care so i'm not going to discuss i appreciate that you wrote it in and that is funny but you know that's not something we're here to talk about but thank you for sending that in augie all right greg scott bailey writes fun fact um, in Star Trek IV, Voyage Home, the crew gets a new Enterprise, NCC 1701A. This was actually the USS Yorktown, NCC 1717. Then in Star Trek Beyond, the crew go to Starbase Yorktown uh, and are given a new Enterprise at the end of that movie. I have no... Rob, you might be more... I have no idea what it is Scott's trying to say here. What what what's the basic gist here that's that's being talked about here, Rob? Well, let me. Okay, start for the crew get a new Enterprise. They do. Uh, this was actually the USS Enterprise Yorktown. Well, okay, that isn't canonically established in the film. Hmm. The 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 Enterprise A. It's a rechristened ship. At the 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 Yorktown is a ship that is mentioned in Star Trek history. But in Star Trek Four, it's not necessarily canonically the Yorktown because it's never shown on screen what it was before it was the Enterprise A. But you Got know, the, and the Yorktown is the Yorktown is a historical. It comes out of history, so that's where they got that name from. So, right, I can understand that connection being drawn. All right. uh, Next up, an anonymous viewer writes, just wanting to second an earlier viewer recommendation of Ted Lasso, possibly my favorite show of the year created by Bill Lawrence with Jason Sudeikis, a heartwarming show that you can't help but love. I had never even heard of this show till the other day when somebody brought it up. And I think it was on open mic that we were talking about it. And then I went to the website and I had no idea it involved Jason Sudeikis. I love Jason Sudeikis. I am a big, big fan of Jason Sudeikis. I just think he is a wonderful, wonderful performer. Uh, I, I'm always talking about it. Little comedy that he did with Lake Bell uh, like six or seven years ago called A Good Old Fashioned Orgy. It is absolutely hilarious. If you have not seen it, you should go check it out. A number of theater chains wouldn't show it because of the title, but it's a really funny movie. Go and check that out. I'm a big fan of his. And I saw the preview for Ted Lasso. And Rob, it's like a lot of these shows that are on Apple TV Plus. I None of them look good to me. Like, none of them look good. They all look meh to me. That includes Morning Show. That includes uh, For All Mankind. But they all look meh to me. But then I watch the Morning Show and I'm like, holy shit, this is great. And then I watch For All Mankind, and I'm like, holy shit, this is great. And then I'm hearing that Chris Evans one uh, about his kid, about his son. I'm hearing that's spectacular, too. So that's on my to-watch list. And now I'm like, and now I'm seeing this Ted Lasso thing, and I don't know. Maybe Apple TV is doing a much better job than I thought they would at first. Have you been keeping up with any of the uh, Apple TV stuff? And if so, does anything stand out to you as being really good? 
Um, you know, I just I don't have I don't have it yet. Ah, I, there you go. I, I, I'm you know I've wanted to see for all mankind, dude. I am so excited to see it. I just I haven't pulled the trigger on Apple TV, and and I I I need to see. I mean, there's more and more stuff on Apple TV that I want to see, but right now, from what I want to see on it, I could binge it in like three or four days, and I'd be done. I had I wouldn't have gotten I I would listen I would have I had no plans of getting Apple TV Plus, none. But I had bought a new iPad Pro. And so about a week or two weeks after I got my iPad Pro, I got an email from Apple saying, hey, because you made a qualifying purchase, Apple purchase, you get a year of Apple TV Plus. I'm like, oh, okay. So I checked out Morning Show and I'm like, even though I had no intention to, and I'm like, oh my God. This, and then I watched For All Mankind. Rob, you're going to love For All Mankind. You're, you are going to, that is your show. That show was designed for you. So you are going to love that when you get a chance. All right. Next up, uh, Andres writes, uh, big fan here. Thank you so much, man. I don't know if this has come up, but I read that Chloe Zhao, director of The Eternals, has won the Golden Lion in Venice and has a RT of 100%, talking about her new film, Nomadland. Um, this has just doubled my interest in The Eternals movie. Rob, you and I were talking about this the other day uh, with Chloe Zhao, who is, of course, the director for The Eternals. She's got this other film. Uh, coming out Nomad Land uh, with a Fargo Academy Award winning actress Fargo. Uh, Rob, help me out here. What's what's the actress's name again? I keep forgetting. Frances McDormand. Th thank you. Multiple multiple time Academy Award winning thing. Um, it's winning awards. It just got hu played huge at Toronto. Everybody's talking about this thing. I didn't realize it had 100 percent on Rotten Tomatoes, but. Rob, when you hear, because I know you've been really looking forward to Eternals, when you hear about oh, the dude. director of a film you're looking forward to is like knocking it out of the park with another movie, that's got to increase your excitement for, for Eternals, doesn't it? Oh, I did a whole show this weekend about how excited I am uh, for Chloe, uh, Chloe Zhao. You know, I, I don't know if we're pronouncing it right. Somebody corrected me, the pronunciation, but I'll let's just say Zhao because that's what it looks like. Um, I... I am so excited because, you know, it was Kevin Feige who said that her presentation for Eternals, her unique take on it was something they hadn't really considered. And that's what that's what pushed them in the direction of her directing the project. And the fact that she's now this is her third feature and that it's winning. The, it won the Golden Lion at Venice. It has someone like Frances McDormand starring in it. Which, I by think, the way, Craig, why didn't Joker win it last year? I think it did. And it went on to get nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards after that. So, yeah, yeah. interesting. And, and I think, you know, this this idea – people do not give Kevin Feige even enough credit for the people that he's found to direct these movies because everyone's like, oh, there's a house style and it's all so boring. But I disagree. I think when you have a James Gunn, you have a Taika Waititi, you have the Russo brothers bringing that Michael Mann feel to uh, – that heat – field to Captain America Winter Soldier, they are allowing auteurist directors to bring their auteurist vision to work within the confines of what they want the MCU to be. And I think that's really exciting. And with Thor Ragnarok now with Love and Thunder and with Guardians of the Galaxy, we're getting 
kind of these crazy, unique visions that is not cookie cutter. And I don't think Kevin Feige necessarily gets enough credit for that. And I think they're going to lean into that more and more as they branch out and away from what they did with the uh, Infinity Saga. They want these movies to have more of an identity to them because that's what's going to keep people coming back. They don't want them to feel so homogenized and all the same. Uh, I haven't heard much about it. But I'm always interested in finding stuff out. <laughs> you know, the more knowledge people can bring me, the better off the world is. The more knowledge people bring me, the better off the world is. I love yeah, it. Because okay. then I can share that knowledge then on our platforms. Yeah. Why not? All right. Let's move on here. Uh, next up comes to us from Leo Milmet, who writes, Geo and Gang knowledge that C and D were so easy to qualify for did a lot to help me understand more industry context even after I read the rules you are a gentleman and a scholar well thank you so much for that I just I think it's important that people understand context right that people understand context that before getting all upset I mean look Rob I've talked about this before and it's, it's not just the Oscars thing we as people and we're all guilty of it you, the viewer, are guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. Rob's guilty of this. We One of the, the real bad traits of us as a species, Rob, is that we love feeling outrage. Because when we feel outrage over something, particularly moral outrage, it makes us feel morally superior. It makes us feel morally like we have the moral high ground. It makes us feel better about ourselves to be morally outraged at something somebody else does. We're all guilty of it, me included. The problem with that, of course, expresses itself that sometimes we jump to outrage far too quickly and far too easily without actually taking a moment to actually look into the thing that we are claiming we're feeling outrage over. And so I saw a lot of people, I saw some people thoughtfully address the, the Oscar situation like yourself, Rob. I saw some people just getting all outraged on it and when you read their outrage you're like oh say so clearly this person didn't even bother to read the rules <laughs> like because if they read the rules they wouldn't be saying the specific things they're saying but it's not just that i find this happens a lot and it happens a lot even just in the entertainment world rob and what like i i don't know if it's laziness on our part that we just don't want to actually look into it and actually understand what it is we're trying to comment on or if it's we just love to feel outrage and express outrage so much. And again, we're all guilty of it, that we just want to get quickly to our outrage. So we don't want to bother research. I don't know. Like, I, have you come across this? Have you recognized this, Rob, yourself in, in like all your in and out daily dealings? I know. I completely agree with you. I, the one thing about outrage is it allows you to feel genuine emotion Um Outrage is, is, I mean, it's all about what, what Yoda was talking about. It's easy. It's more seductive because when you're really outraged about something, you feel it. It doesn't come in waves and you don't suddenly become sad. You're feeling it all the time. And you, by, by doing things, by acting out on that outrage or doing things that you perceive to be doing the right thing to, to this is outrageous. I'm going to do something. You get a sense of satisfaction personal satisfaction even though i think sometimes outrage is easier and more seductive and before you act on that outrage maybe take a step back but nowadays it's hard 
outrage is immediately satisfying. It's like biting into food that you know isn't good for you but tastes really, really good. You get that immediate <laughs> rush of feeling. You know, and, and, and our it's hard. Daily life is hard in finding meaning and finding things that make you happy, that really make you happy all the way down to your soul is difficult. Outrage provides it's like a drug. It's it's fake feeling. I mean, it's not fake that you feel outrage, but the, the, the charge you get from it is ultimately fake because you don't want to spend your life in an in outrage mode. That does no good for no anybody. Yeah, I agree. And and look, I, full full admission here, full admission. I, I we're all guilty of this. I have been definitely guilty of this. Uh, we we are all guilty. It's, I just think it's one of the more unfortunate traits for us uh, as a species. And I just I just hope that hey, listen, it's okay to feel outraged sometimes. Just make sure you read up on what it is you're being outraged over. That that that's all I think. I think that's the 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 caveat for all of us it's like it's okay to feel outraged over some things just make sure it is you know what you're talking about that's all and i think uh, i think if more of us including like all of us who, who do these sorts of platforms do that i think we'd all be better off for it so something for all of us to keep our, our eyes on all right last question of the day here while we've got rob because he's got things he's got to do ryan loner at uh, writes i had an odd little suspension of disbelief failure in the latest the boys superheroes have been around since the 1940s with all the changes to history that implies and somehow we didn't start the fire is exactly the same uh, i mean yeah i mean that's that's one thing rob in the boys and we don't want to go into specifics for people who aren't right up to date with the latest episode but yeah it is crazy when you're watching the boys, they don't even try to pretend like this is a different world. They are constantly like trying to say, this is our world. Like Billy Joel, his hit songs, all that kind of stuff is our world. They even make reference to like very recent things. So, but while doing that, also introducing that it's a very different world at the same time. Soldier Boy was, a, was the first superhero. You know, the Lady Liberty has been around for decades and all this kind of stuff. It makes it it sometimes collides with each other. I agree, but I'm still okay with them doing it because I, I don't know them making these little connections with our world. I like Rob, do you find it helps or hurts the verisimilitude uh -huh. of the show when they keep drawing parallels to our actual world with, with real modern and recent pop culture references, or do you find that it hurts it? How do you feel about it? Well, if you think about the fact that, remember, the superheroes were created in this world. They were manufactured and they were products that were employed for profitability, for Vought, you know, and, and I'd be curious if we're going to delve into the history of Vought. But these superheroes were not like the Justice Society of America trying to do trying to be do-gooders during World War Two. So they weren't. Like these superheroes weren't used to fight all the injustices in the world. They were used to fight the injustices that would bring Vought the most profit. So I think that all of these things that Billy Joel was singing about could absolutely have still happened. And, right. um, you know, so that didn't bother me. That doesn't – it depends. I mean you ask yourself, well, did the Vietnam War – I mean, Watchmen certainly deals with that. Dr. Manhattan was yes, employed right. to make sure, you know. So – it's it's really um, it's really interesting. I mean, I'll, I'll, it's interesting to see where they go. 
All right. Well, in the meantime, Rob, we know you've got things you got to run and do. So thanks so much for being here today. Until we see you on here again the next time, where can people follow you and your adventures online? You can find me on Instagram at Robert Meyer Burnett. Find me on Twitter at Burnett RM or find me on my own YouTube channel, The Burnett Work. All right, dude. Thanks a lot for being here. And we will talk to you again soon, my friend. Take care, Good dude. Good show, man. I had a lot of fun today. Me too. All right, guys. Listen, that, of course, is the wonderful Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. And we still got some time here. So let's keep going through your live questions that you guys have sent in. Taj and Cars writes, my girlfriend and I saw Tenant while in Napa this past weekend and loved it. The sound was perfect. So that's definitely a theater by theater issue. Didn't not not hear anything anyone said aside from what was intended by Nolan and the story never lost it. So that's great. And, you know, different people. That's why I want to point out that not everybody is saying not everybody is saying that uh, things aren't working for them and all that kind of stuff. Um, but. It is definitely a thing for some. And it's not just a theater-to-theater -theater issue because that would mean all movies would experience that. There is definitely clearly something wrong with the audio mix in this movie where in a lot of theaters, it makes it unintelligible for a lot of people. But in some theaters, maybe it plays fine. I'm really glad that you had that experience. And I'm really glad for all the people that are having that experience. But the numbers are just climbing up too high of how many people are reporting it. You see all the articles being written about it now. It is an issue that they need to address. And quite frankly, despite the fact that he's one of my favorite filmmakers, it's a, it's an issue Christopher Nolan's got to really start paying attention to moving forward. Uh, is the audio mix and the sound mix and dialogue and, and how loud certain things get in relation to other volumes. And But I'm glad you had that good experience, dude. That's awesome. All right. Min Tran writes, Assuming that Wonder Woman 84 is still getting released in December, how low would it have to make for us to worry about the sequel getting canceled? Um, I don't know. See, here's the thing. I think Warner Brothers and all the studios right now are probably in the type of situation where it's like they understand we are living in unprecedented times. So, like, think of it this way. Think like you're running through the woods, you fall down. And you pierce your shoulder with a, a dirty branch or something. Turns out it got infected and the doctors say, okay, you're either going to die or we can amputate your arm and you'll live. You're just in a situation where eh, you got to take the best of a bad situation. It sucks that you're going to lose your arm, but at very least you're going to lose your arm. You'll live and you'll go on to have a totally productive, great life, but you're going to have to do without your arm. And I think a lot of the studios right now, like Warner Brothers was with Tenant, they're in a scenario where it feels like they understand, listen, we are not going to have the kind of release for this movie that we were hoping to have pre-pandemic. That's just not in the cards for us in this movie anymore. It's not going to happen. So now the question is, how do we make the best of a bad situation? We just have to accept that right now, part of getting all the movies back in theaters and getting people back to come back into theaters, there's going to have to be some of our movies. They're going to have to do go out there. We're going to have to put them out to do their job to get as many people back in the theaters as, as possible. But we're just going to have to accept that it's not going to perform the way it would have pre-pandemic. And we're just going to have to accept that and use these movies to help get us and all of our other movies back to where we all want to be. Wonder Woman may be one of those movies. Tenet was definitely one of those movies. Maybe Black Widow is going to be one of those movies. They're just going to have to accept, you know what? Look, we are not going to make the money on Wonder Woman 84 or Black Widow or Tenet that we thought we were going to make before the pandemic hit. We're just not. 
So how can we make the best of a bad situation? Maybe Wonder Woman's going to have to amputate an arm and we make the best of a bad situation. You live and you're going to be healthy for the rest of your life. You just have, I mean, maybe that's what's going to have to happen. So I don't think anything. I, I, let's put it this way. I think Wonder Woman 84, whenever it comes out, is going to have to do so monumentally badly that you can't even argue that had the pandemic not hit, it would have done well. Like if Wonder Woman 84 comes out and makes $400 million, I think they'll be okay with that. I mean, they're not going to be happy about it, but I think they're going to understand, hey, listen, given the current circumstances and given what the whole movie industry has been through, that's as good as we could have hoped for. So fine. Because at $400 million, you could make the argument that, hey, if the pandemic never hit, this thing probably would have made 800, 900 million, a billion dollars at the box office. Fine. So we would have to make such a low number that you can't even argue that had the pandemic not hit, it would have done fine. So I, I honestly think Wonder Woman will be just fine. I really do, man. I think Warner Brothers with, the, with Wonder Woman is going to be just fine. All right. Steve Alexander writes. Hey, John, I'm literally standing here in front of the AMC Burbank 16 Plaza. I love going down there. I've never seen it so empty. Yep. Yes, I see people seated in a few restaurants outside, but it's not the same. I miss the busyness and craziness of Burbank. Bring on the filthy. I'll tell you what, Steve, my wife and I walked down downtown again because, you know, we go for walks every night and uh, haven't lately because the air quality has been so bad because of the fires. But the other night, uh, a little while ago, we also walked down. We like to walk to downtown Burbank from our place. And downtown Burbank is awesome. It's always alive with the hustle and bustle of people. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of restaurants all packed in a couple of blocks. So there's always lots of activity, lots of people. Then you've got right as, as the crown piece, right in the center of it all is the AMC Burbank 16. I think it's the second or third busiest movie theater in the country. So there's always a ton of activity around it. It is an awesome place to be and hang out. Every time though, the last few months that Ann and I have walked down there though, it's been jarring, like how, how, how much of a ghost town it is. It's like you're waking up in 28 days later, you know, it's like, what's gone on here? It's like, it is kind of, it's, it's, it's jarring, Steve. It's jarring. So I totally see, I totally get where you're coming from and what you're saying. Cause I, I've been there myself. All right. Uh, Zayan writes. Hey, John and Rob, just missed Rob, unfortunately. Hope y'all are doing well. Uh, I'm three episodes in with the show Raised by Wolves, and I like each episode a lot. It has ambitiousness, but it doesn't get too deep about the topics it deals with, such as religion, parenthood, etc. Check it out. Thanks. Oh, I'm, I'm totally up to date on Raised by Wolves. I don't, I wouldn't go so, it's the new Ridley Scott film on HBO Max. I would not go so far as to say that I love the show yet, but I'm very intrigued by it. I think they're doing some really interesting things while keeping the focus on the things that they need to be focused on. You know what I'm saying? Um, so I'm, in li I'm liking the show very much. It can go one of several directions. I'm hoping it continues to go in the direction that I think it's going to go in because I'm enjoying it uh, quite a bit. Uh, I could see it going off the rails pretty quickly too if it's not careful, but I'm, I'm enjoying the show and I'm invested in it and I'm very interested and intrigued by it. I'm not quite at the point that I'm ready to say that I love it yet, but, but it's getting there. It's quite good. You guys should check it out if you haven't had a chance yet. All right. Orange hand writes, if we are getting a Battenson trilogy, uh, 
or just a new Batman films in general. I'd really like to see a better live action version of Mr. Freeze. It's been over 20 years since Arnold's atrocity and it's time someone did this character justice. I'll be honest with you, Orange Hand. I don't know that that's a character you can do justice in live action. I'm, I'm not convinced you can do that character justice in live action. We've seen the character done justice a few times in animated form. Hell, I even love the Mr. Freeze we get in the Harley Quinn series. I, I love that Mr. Freeze. But all cards on the table, I'm not sure that that is a character that... I mean, anything can work. Anything can work. All right? Felipe the Sentient Dancing Microphone can work. A live-action Mr. Freeze could work. There's a way to do it, I guess. But it's a very that would be a very, very challenging one to do live action. And it certainly doesn't, to use Rob's term again, it's certainly, he's not a character that meets the verisimilitude that a lot of the other characters can. So I don't know. I, I don't know that we'd see them go the route of, of Mr. Freeze. I just don't know. I, I don't know if that's just a character that's better kept to the animated format where he works much better. But who knows? Maybe the right filmmaker comes along and finds a way to crack that code. Maybe there is. I certainly didn't like the Mr. Freeze we got on Gotham. Uh, so uh, there's that too. All right, next up. Caleb writes, Hey, John and Rob, of these three, who do you think has the best career since their respective franchise run has ended? Shia LaBeouf in Transformers 1 through 3, Pattinson Twilight, or Radcliffe Harry Potter? My bet is Shia continually putting out great work. Thanks. Uh, it all depends on if you're talking about success or just done that great of a job. Because I'll tell you what, Shia and, and Robert Pattinson, what they have done their work speaks for itself. I mean, even just this past year, like 2019 was a killer year for Shia LaBeouf. Robert Pattinson has been nothing but killing it since the Twilight movies with, with the performances he's been turning in. Um, Radcliffe, Daniel Radcliffe has, has really, especially the last couple of years, has really been doing some interesting things. But I don't think he's on the same level as, say, Shia LaBeouf or Robert Pattinson quite yet. So I wouldn't say, I'd say it's down between Shia and Pattinson. And I, I don't know, man, to me, that's a coin toss. They have both done some absolutely phenomenal work. Uh, neither of which have had huge success, but they've both put in some really good work. So I don't know. To me, it's a toss up between those two. Great question though, Caleb. All right, next up. Yoda and Yadel's love child rights. Uh, in The Mandalorian, many are wondering how Moth uh, Gus Fring got, that's of course Giancarlo Esposito, uh, got the Darksaber. Why would an Imperial have it? Could he be a Mandalorian who sides with the Empire like we saw in Rebels and he then helped them with his purge of his own people? No, I think it has a lot more to do. Listen, they keep referring to an event. In Mandalorian, they keep referring to a cataclysmic event in The Mandalorian. And a lot of people keep attributing that event to some stuff that's maybe happened in Clone Wars or Rebels. I have a feeling it's something that happened post-Clone Wars and Rebels. That has something very much to do with the Empire. And I'm thinking that is how he came across, came about getting possession of the Darksaber. Now remember, there's a lot of years that separate the, event of, the events of Rebels and when Mandalorian takes place. 
There's a lot of years separating those two things. So I think we're going to get a much clearer answer to that as we get into Mandalorian season two. So I think in Mandalorian we'll get it, but that's how I think it's going to be structured. That's how I basically think it's going to be structured. All right. Roger Lee writes, Rewatch through Mandalorian this weekend, and it took a rewatch to realize that G uh, Gina Carano is my absolute favorite part of the first season. Like Batista, with the right part and the right direction, uh, Carano can really shine. I've become such a Gina Carano fan. No, you're absolutely right. Listen, Dave Batista is not one of the world's great actors. And the first person who will tell you that is Dave Batista, which is one of the reasons why I like Dave so much. He's like so self-aware. But he keeps getting better. He clearly keeps getting better. And I think part of the reason why he keeps getting better is because he has that attitude of, I'm not some great actor. I've got so much to learn. And I think that's why he has gotten so much better. But you look at a movie like Guardians of the Galaxy, where he is really one of the shining points of that movie. And I think that's a great example of, you get a director like James Gunn, and take an actor where he was in his career at that time, like Dave Batista, a director who knows how to highlight what are this performer's strengths and how to hide those parts of his acting repertoire that may be weaknesses. And if you get the right director paired with an actor who knows how to really highlight their strengths and really hide their weaknesses, you can get something pretty special. And Gina Carano, who I've been a huge fan of ever since her MMA days, uh, again, she's not the strongest actress in the world, but I think you're absolutely right. When you put her into The Mandalorian, you suddenly had some directors and uh, over under the overall guidance of Jon Favreau who really knew how to let's play to Gina's strengths with this character and let's not put her or her character in positions or situations that will expose her weaknesses, much like James Gunn did with Dave Batista, And like Dave Batista, Gina Carano has just gotten better over the years, right? She's not as, let's say, weak as a performer as she was six or seven years ago. She's much better now than she was, as is Dave Batista. But again, it's all about a great director and great filmmakers and great storytellers know how to put their performers in positions that will highlight their strengths and not expose their weaknesses. And I think that only helps the performer and helps them get better. And I think that's a situation you've seen there, Roger. So I agree with your observation on that. All right, next up, Double Crit writes, Glad you could finally see Tenet. I saw it and enjoyed it, though, like many people, I couldn't follow along at some points due to bad audio or confusing time elements. Just curious, who do you like the most in the movie? John David, uh, John David uh, Washington, Robert Pattinson, or someone else? Ooh, I like them both very much. I, I thought, you know what? I started to grow to really love the dynamic between John David Washington and Robert Pattinson in the movie. I... Uh, if I had, to, I love them both. If I had, I think I preferred not necessarily Robert Pattinson's performance, but I think I like Pattinson's character the best. I think I just, there's something about that character right from when we're introduced to him right to the end of the movie. 
I, I think I may like his character even more than John David Washington's character. Again, I'm not necessarily saying he had a better performance, but I really did love the character an awful lot. All right, next up, Ryan Trabuco writes, Hey, John, hope you had a great weekend. I did have a great weekend. Thank you for asking. Happy to have joined as a Patreon supporter this weekend. Oh, thank you so much for that, Ryan. I appreciate that, dude. And thank you to all of you guys who are Patreon supporters, by the way. Uh, did you experience... Uh, did your experience at the AMC in Orange County compare favorably to Vegas? I was very impressed with my experience at the AMC Mission Valley in San Diego. You know what? I was expecting to not have as good of an experience at the AMC Orange 30 in Anaheim as I did at the AMC Town Center in Las Vegas. My experience at the AMC Town Center in Vegas was nothing short of absolutely wonderful. Like I had a fantastic time there. It was so safe. They took such extreme safety precautions. I was just, I wasn't expecting the AMC Orange 30 in Anaheim to replicate that. I, I just wanted it to be close to that, you know? And I honestly didn't know what it would be like. But I gotta tell you, it was almost as good, like very, very close to being just as good as my experience at the AMC Town Center in Las Vegas. It was a very, very good experience. I felt like the theater was taking safety procedures very seriously. Nobody seated anywhere close to us uh, when we got into our seats. They kept everybody spaced out in concession lines. They didn't have people pressing their own soda dispenser buttons. They did a really, really great job. And uh, I enjoyed, I, I ended up having a really good time. I felt so good that I feel good enough taking my wife that we, I'm going to go see Tenet for a second time. It's going to be Anne's first time seeing it. So that's how comfortable I felt in it. Yeah. So it was, it was a pretty darn good experience, Ryan. And again, thank you for coming a Patreon supporter, brother. All right. Next up, Russell Amador. I just got a few minutes left here, guys. Russell Amador writes, Hey, John. By any chance, have you seen Sweetheart on Netflix? No, I don't think I have. It's another small, low-budget film from Blumhouse, and it didn't disappoint. The premise is one girl is stranded on an island with a local sea creature coming out to torment her. Worth a watch. I have not even heard of this, which is not surprising because it's Netflix. They don't do a great job um, of promoting their, their, their content. I'm looking at it right now. It doesn't have a great rating. Actually, the Rotten Tomatoes rating is like 94%. It's got me intrigued. It says it's a 2019 film, so this came out last year. So I'm intrigued. I, I, I will keep my eye open for it, Russell. Thank you for putting that on my radar, dude. All right, next up, Ben Rayner writes, Hey, John and Rob, I have not read Dune more... I have not read Dune, more probably meant nor, nor have I seen any of the older material. I watched the trailer and it looks nice and I want to like it, but I don't get it. If is, if possible, can you sum up story in one sentence? If not, I understand. Have a good day. Thanks. I don't think I can sum up Dune. Basically, look, it's both a political and space epic drama, right? You got these, it's, it's like feudal with the different houses the Harkonnen, you know, the Atreides. And basically, it's kind of Game of Thrones-like battle for power. And one of the this epi epicenters for power is an unlikely world known as Arrakis, this desert world. And the spice. There's this thing called spice that basically the whole universe wants and needs. And it's very mysterious, this stuff. The spice must flow. And sort of, it's, it's a battle, but it follows one particular character 
the the heir of house atreides paul atreides after his family's been betrayed and it basically follows him and his kind of journey from there so it's, again just obviously it's very very tough for me to put into one sentence um the best thing to do go online google uh dune synopsis that would probably be the best thing for you to do, Ben, and probably give you your clearest picture. All right. Uh, hopefully that was at least a little bit helpful. All right. K.W. Garrett writes, in the last month or so, it seems you added a new disclaimer about people submitting questions. I will answer if it's reasonable. I was just wondering, was there a flood of unreasonable questions you received lately? A lot of breakdancing requests. No, no, but what has happened is um, I have uh, I have people who, what's the word? Moderators. I have a couple of people do some moderating um, and will just give me a heads up. Like, I don't like to know the questions in advance because then I can't give my quick response. That's why sometimes you'll hear me say, like, with Sweetheart, I have no idea what Sweetheart is. I've never heard of it um, because I like to give a good, honest response. So I like not to read, but I will have people who will give me a heads up. Hey, John, there's somebody who wrote in a question that was like about this. And I'm like, okay, no, we're not going to talk about this. That's, that's rude or, or it's way, way, way too off topic or... Um, or, you know, insensitive or sometimes, hey, somebody writes in something homophobic or somebody writes in something racist. Not often, but they they want to get it on the show and they, they write in something racist. It's like, eh, okay, no, we're not going to do that. So I do get some heads up on that. We don't always catch it. We don't always catch it. But it's important that I give that disclaimer up front and say, hey, listen, uh, as long as it's within reason, so you don't think you can just, just because you sent in five bucks, that does not obligate me uh, to, to read what you're reading. If you want to tip and donate and, uh, and tip the channel, great, but that does not obligate me by any stretch of the imagination to talk about something really inappropriate or something we don't want to discuss here. It doesn't obligate me. So that, so I decided a while ago to start putting in that disclaimer as long as it's within, it's within reason. And for the most part, I think there's only been like, honestly, like four or five times in the last 90 shows we've done where something had to be removed. Honestly, like out of the last 90 shows covering like 40 to 50 questions a day. So out of the thousands of questions, there've been like four or five times we've had to, to pull something. So there's that, but thank you. Good, good observation on that. All right. Uh, let's see here. Frankie G writes, don't know if I really like Raised by Wolves, but it is one of the more interesting things that I've watched in a long time. Frankie, I am I am very much with you, except I, I will lean a little bit more towards I am enjoying it. I'm liking it and I'm totally intrigued. It is, it's very different. Now, the first three or four episodes have all to me been very much set up, right? And it's gonna, what's gonna make or break it is where they go after this setup. I've got a feeling like they have one or two more episodes of really good foundational setup, and then we're gonna see the show really go in the direction it's going. There's obviously something very prophetic about the child, all that kind of stuff, yes. But yeah, I'm not in love with it yet, but damn, I'm intrigued by it. And I like the way you put that, Frankie. Very, very, um, very, interesting it's very interesting to see and, and we'll see where we go all right guys it is now 12 o'clock we've reached two hours that'll do it for us for now guys for everybody who still has questions outstanding don't worry about it we will start because there's only a, a handful of questions left we will start tomorrow's live questions part of the show with your questions that we didn't get to here so don't worry if you sent in one of the questions there's still a handful left here and we didn't get to yours yet don't worry 
yours will be the first one up. The first one's up on tomorrow. So thank you again for saying that. And thanks to Robert Meyer Burnett for being here and blessing us all with his great intellect and insight. Thank you to all you guys for making this show a part of your day. We are very cognizant of how much of an honor that is that you would choose to spend part of your day with us. So thank you guys so much for that. And a special thank you to all you guys who did send in those live questions and comments and tips because number one, you gave us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you supported this channel while you did it. And all of us here, thank you guys very much for that. Don't forget, guys, we'll be back again tomorrow with the next episode of The John Campus Show. If you haven't done so already, make sure you click on that subscribe button. That will do it for me, guys. Remember to do the four main things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and please take care of the people around you. My name's John Campia, and until next time, my friends, bye-bye.